Tom and I conspired a little bit to uh, add just a little bit of scripture for context purposes. So we'll start a little further ahead in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, uh, beginning at verse 10. I give my opinion in this matter, for this is to your advantage, who were the first to begin a year ago, not only to do this, but also to desire it. But now finish doing it also, so that just as there was the readiness to desire it, so there may be also the completion of it by your ability. For if the readiness is present, it is acceptable according to what a man has, not according to what he does not have. For this is not for the ease of others and for your affliction, but by way of equality. At this present time, your abundance being a supply for their want, that their abundance also may become a supply for your want, that there may be equality, as it is written, he who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little had no lack. Now we're going to go to Acts chapter 4, but I want to read just a few verses before our text there as well, beginning at Acts chapter 4 and verse 29. Peter and John have been run through the mill for preaching the gospel, and they've come back to the church to report, and they pray to God, and this is a portion of their prayer. And now, Lord, verse 29, look upon their threats and, and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Now taking up the text of verse 32. And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. And with great power, the apostles were giving witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all. For there was not a needy person among them. For all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each as any had need. And Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which translated means son of encouragement, and who owned a tract of land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Let's pray. Father, what a beautiful picture it is to see in the book of Acts the way in which people who came to faith uh, manifested uh, their, their generosity and their gratitude and not only by giving to people that were like them, but the giving to those that had once been considered far away. So we just pray that you would guide Tom, guide each of us, help us to be those people who not only do give, but who desire, first of all, and look for opportunities to do that, to your praise and glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, brother. Good morning. At the end of uh, last week's message, I told you that we would be con what we'd be considering today from verses 12 to 15 of 2 Corinthians 8 is the goal of our giving within 
the household of God, not the goal of all charitable giving by Christians to meet needs that they see in the world. Uh, that giving is important, certainly. But as we saw last week, the greatest priority in our giving is the care of the church by the church, and that is God's gracious work. Galatians 6 verse 10 instructs us to, quote, do good to all men, especially to those who are of the household of the faith. The word translated especially there is, is the superlative form for the word much. In other words, it means exceedingly. We are exceedingly to do good to those who are of the household of the faith. In 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9, and in the second passage that Bob just read from Acts 4, the giving that is, is in focus is giving within the community of the saints. God intends for that giving to far exceed what we give to meet needs in the world. We can like that or not like it, but that is the focus of so much of what we see about giving in the New Testament. And it is certainly the focus of this gift that Paul is going from church to church to collect in order to give to the Jerusalem saints. If that gives us heartburn, that heartburn doesn't qualify us to change God's assignment to His church. I said at the end of last week's message that God's goal for our giving within His household is equality of material provision among the saints. And that provoked some pretty good conversations since last week. Uh, and I appreciate those conversations. I appreciate being directed to many passages of Scripture. Uh, I, I want to make sure that, that I get this right, as right as I possibly can. As I've camped out in these passages over the last few weeks, God has been applying the sharp two-edged sword of His Word to my own heart, my own reluctant heart. I've asked him not to let me in any way minimize what he is saying here to, to me and to you. And I've asked him to be relentless in making me and us actually do what honors him in this, uh, this vitally important matter of giving. The most important thing that we must all understand is that this, that this whole issue of giving is to be love-driven, not rule-driven. As soon as our conversation about giving moves from, from the realm of love to the realm of rules, we, will, we stop saying what God is saying. And I can't possibly emphasize that enough. I'll try to come back to it many times, several times in this message. At the same time, beloved, God's Word is crystal clear that the generosity of heart and the openness of hand to which He calls every single one of us in our care for one another, whether we are rich or poor, must not be treated as something that we can just take or leave. It cannot be treated as something that we, that we just leave for others to do. The money that God puts in your hand and in mine is His. Not some of it, all of it. And His Word has a great deal to say to us about what He means to accomplish by giving it to us. Clearly, 
some of what he means to accomplish is to use us as instruments in the work that we do with our own hands to provide for us and our own families. But that is not all of what God intends to accomplish through what he gives to us. Either we will love our money or we will love with our money. The first denies God's purpose for giving it to us, and the second fulfills God's purpose for giving it to us. In verses 12 to 15 of 2 Corinthians 8, uh, Paul clarifies God's goal for our giving within the household of God, the body of Christ. And I'll say again that that goal in a nutshell is love-driven equality in enough. Now I'm going to read verses 12 to 14, and I'm going to ask you not to miss Paul's use of the word equality. The uh, saints in Corinth had been the first to pledge to agree to participate in this gift, but they weren't doing any good at, f- at following through on their commitment. So he calls them here to honor what they had said they would do. He says, if the readiness is present, it is acceptable according to what a man has and not according to what a man does not have. We don't get to go into debt to give. Okay. For this is not for the ease of others and for your affliction, but it is, quote, by way of equality. At this present time, your abundance being a supply for their want, that their abundance may also become a supply for your want, that there may be equality. He says it twice. The goal of our giving in the church is equality of earthly provision within the household of God. The Greek word translated equality in verses 13 and 14 means equality. Some have said that it means balance and some vague sense of that word. I have a hard time finding a biblical use of the word balance that isn't talking about precise weights. Bear with me. Please bear with me. Others say that the equality that Paul is talking about here only applies at the corporate level. In other words, the goal is for every local church to have what is needed and for no local church to have in excess. Paul does not leave us to guess what he means here by the word equality. He tells us in verse 15. But before we look at that verse, let me get one other objection out of the way. Paul is absolutely not talking about dollar-for-dollar equality among all the saints. That would be utterly impossible to achieve in the first place. Can you imagine what life would be like in the body of Christ if every local church and then the church worldwide had a, a money and stuff police squad to make sure that every one of us had the same amount of money in the bank, the same square footage in all of our houses, the same make and model of car and year with the same number of miles. If any local church ever tried to enforce equality of earth to enforce, that's the word I'm looking for here, to enforce equality of earthly provision among all the peoples and families in the body of Christ, it would be devastating to godly love and unity. As Paul said in 2 Corinthians 3.6, the letter kills, 
but the Spirit gives life. If we're legalistic about this, guys, we will get it absolutely wrong. Again, I can't emphasize that enough. Here's the goal, beloved. When any among us, or when a community of saints in another place, is lacking in the material provisions that we enjoy, we lovingly and joyfully give up some of what God has given to us so that, as Paul says, there may be equality. We care for one another in the body of Christ as we care for ourselves because we are one with one another. In the verse I didn't read just a moment ago, verse 15, Paul removes all doubt about the fact that when he uses the word equality, he means equality. As he continually does in his letters to the churches, he goes back to God's dealings with his covenant people in the Old Testament in order to explain God's intention for us who are his covenant people under the new covenant. He says in verse 15, as it is written, he who gathered much did not have too much and he who gathered little had no lack. He's directing us all the way back to the second book of the Bible, Exodus chapter 16, where God laid out his clear instructions to Israel regarding the miraculous provision of manna, bread from heaven, that sustained them during the entire time of their 40 years wandering around in the desert wilderness of Sinai. After God delivered Israel out of slavery in Egypt, and before he brought them into the land of promise, they spent 40 years in the desert. And without God's miraculous provision for their needs, their physical needs, they would all have perished very quickly. For the first six days of every week, that chapter, Exodus 16, tells us that God provided bread from heaven that formed like, like dew on the ground every morning. Each day for those six days, the Israelites were to gather the manna, each for his own family. God provided a two-day portion on the sixth day so that they could rest on the seventh, the Sabbath. Now, there are a lot of details I'm leaving out here, but you get the, you get the general picture. If there's one thing that comes through loudly and clearly in Exodus chapter 16, it is God's intention for equality of physical provision among his covenant people. Listen as I read Exodus 16, verses 16 to 18. The last of these verses is the one that Paul cites here in 2 Corinthians. This is what Yahweh has commanded. Gather of it the manna, that's the manna that he gave from heaven. Gather of it every man as much as he should eat. You shall take an omer apiece according to the number of persons each of you has in his tent. And the sons of Israel did so, and some gathered much and some little. The reason some gathered much is because some had more people in their tent. When they measured it with an omer, he who gathered much had no excess, and he who gathered little had no lack. Every man gathered as much as he should eat. Pretty straightforward, right? God's provision was an omer per person. In case you're wondering how much an omer of manna is, it's one-tenth of an ephah. 
I went to Walmart the other day looking for an EFA measure, and there were none to be found. No, I didn't. I didn't really. The Old Testament example uh, that Paul sets before us to explain the goal of our giving within the body of Christ is an example, beloved, of divinely enforced equality in enough. God structured out any possibility of inequality in his heavenly provision for his people. Nobody had less than they needed, and nobody had more than they needed. If they tried to to find a loophole in God's provision, he just absolutely structured out any possibility that that would work. You can read the chapter and see how he did that. Again, the part of the Exodus passage that Paul directly cites is this. As it is written, he who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little had no lack. Got it? When it comes to caring for one another's financial needs within the church, I don't think most of us have trouble with that second part of the assignment, at least in theory. We all agree that no one in the body of Christ should have less than they truly need. We give lots of attention to that part of the assignment. We talk about it. We pray about it. We strive to know one another's needs well enough to be able to spot and address unmet needs and make sure that people are taken care of in the body. And CBC does a pretty good job of that. But beloved, how much do we pray and ponder and plan for and talk about the first part of that assignment? No one had too much. I'm not making this stuff up. Please hear me when I say this. Again, this is not at all about one Christian or group of Christians enforcing on other Christians a particular standard of living or a particular standard of giving. But God is most certainly telling us here that a loving and godly standard of giving will very substantially impact our standard of living. Let me say that again. God is certainly telling us here that a loving and godly standard of giving will very substantially impact our standard of living. If it doesn't, there's something wrong in the heart. We'll talk about how that gets corrected later. All earthly provision comes from the hand of God. The difference between God's provision for Israel's material needs during their wilderness wandering and his provision to address material needs in his church today is not supposed to be a a substantial difference in the outcome. That's why Paul uses the manna to set before us the goal of our giving within the church. Beloved, the difference between God's gift of the manna And our gifts to one another in the church is a difference in agency, not outcome. It's a difference in agency, not outcome. It's a difference in the human agency that God employs to accomplish equality in enough within the church. For Israel in the wilderness, the equality of provision that God engineered among them was essentially out of their hands. 
But the equality of provision that God intends for his church is participatory equality. It is equality accomplished through the agency of his redeemed image bearers as we love one another the way we have been loved by him. I talked last time about Ephesians chapters 1 through 3. We had part of that chapter 2 read this morning, but those chapters are about the unfathomable riches of Christ that God has lavished upon every single one of us. We're filthy rich, guys, in Christ. This is about God providing for one believer through other believers so that all needs are met and none are met excessively. Again, if you don't see this in the passage, come talk to me. I can't get away from it. I'll say again that the equality that God intends within his spiritual household cannot be accomplished through man-imposed enforcement. The only way it happens is through God's sourced love. Love for God and love for God's people because of the love that God has lavished upon us in Christ. We love because he first loved us. It also only happens when God's definition of wealth becomes our definition of wealth, right? In Luke 12, 15, Jesus said, Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed, for not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. In Matthew 6, verses 19 to 24, Jesus said, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures upon earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will hold to one and despise the other. When we genuinely believe and act upon what our Lord tells us about earthly treasures and heavenly treasures, uh, we will, as Sinclair Ferguson puts it, be freed from bondage to money. It appears to me that the early church, at least in some places and times, was a lot more intentional about actually embracing this assignment than the modern Western affluent church typically is. And by the way, Acts chapter 4 is talking about the same church that Paul is now gathering this collection for because they were, they were severely persecuted and partly because of that persecution, they were in great poverty. Now this passage is about when that, right after that church was born. There wasn't much persecution yet. This is the church in its infancy. In Acts 4, we get a vivid picture of what was actually going on in the church in Jerusalem right after the church was born. And this, is, this is no more than probably two or three months after the death and resurrection of Christ. This was not a mature church. 5,000 believers had just been added to the church just before this passage. 5,000. And they're all brand new Christians. 
How'd you like to be elders over 5,000 brand new Christians? The, the church was brand spanking new. But that doesn't mean that the believers here were acting in an immature manner. Quite the opposite. Their first love was on full display in all that they did, and the power of Christ was being made mightily visible in the world through the love that they had for each other and through their proclamation of the Gospel. Now please hear this. Shortly after 5,000 new believers had been added to the church in Jerusalem, and right, and this is why Bob read a little before this, right after they asked God for boldness in their proclamation of the Gospel, here's what God did in them and through them. The congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. And with great power, now it comes right back to the proclamation of the gospel, with great power the apostles were giving witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and abundant grace was upon them all for, so here's how the abundant grace was manifesting itself, not just in, not just in a, a bold proclamation, but for there was not a needy person among them for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet. Lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each as any had need. Now, the first thing I want to point out here is that this outpouring of generosity immediately followed the prayer of the Jerusalem saints for boldness in proclaiming the gospel. You think maybe that their generosity in giving was part of God's answer to that prayer? That maybe the over-the-top liberality in caring for one another within the body of Christ might actually have a direct impact on the effectiveness of our witness to those who are outside the body of Christ? Absolutely. Absolutely. By this they will know that you are my disciples by the love that you have for one another. In his high priestly prayer, Jesus said, I and you, Father, you and me, they and me, perfected in unity that the world might know that you sent me. That the world might know that you sent me. That means our unity has an evangelistic power in the hands of God. And one of the greatest demonstrations of our unity is when we, when we have the genuineness of love to hold very loosely to what God puts in our hands so that, that everybody is taken care of especially when it's Gentiles giving to Jews. And that came later in 2 Corinthians. The second thing I want to point out from this great passage is the ex this extraordinary generosity within the church of Jesus Christ was not a response to a command given to the church by the, by the apostles. What compelled this, this marvelous generosity in the care of the saints by the saints was that, quote, the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Genuine love and unity of heart and soul. These baby believers delighted in putting their love 
for one another into practice. What we're seeing here is the same thing that Paul talked about with regard to the Macedonian saints in the beginning of 2 Corinthians 8. They begged us for the privilege of participation in this gift to the saints in Jerusalem. Nobody had to twist their arm because it was love that drove. It was love that drove this gift. In Acts chapter 4, Luke is careful to point out that the believers in the brand new church at Jerusalem who owned land or houses sold some of those properties to provide for needs within the community of the saints there in Jerusalem. When they did this, each of them brought the proceeds of the sales and they laid them at the apostles' feet. And then it says, and they would be distributed to each, distributed to each as any had need. I don't hear this talked about a lot, but I believe what we're seeing in both of these passages is that giving to meet material needs within the church is something that we as the people of God are generally to do together, not individually. Let me get, go further with this. Who determined which individuals and families received a portion of the pooled money that was to be distributed among the saints, the needy saints in Jerusalem here. And I'm right now I'm talking about Acts 4. Who, who decided how it was distributed? The apostles, plural. At the, they laid it at the apostles' feet. That's really important. This was not one family giving directly to another more needy family. It was every family giving to a pooled fund that was then administered carefully and prayerfully by the leaders whom God had appointed over his church, ensuring that the distribution of those funds met genuine needs and was honoring to Christ. Likewise, in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, Paul is not telling each of the saints in Corinth to set aside whatever he or she had resolved to give and then to make his own arrangements to send each of those individual gifts to a particular family in Jerusalem, right? Both ends of this gift were to be a community act, a corporate act. In 2 Corinthians 8, verses 19 and 20, Paul refers to this collection for the Jerusalem saints as, quote, this gracious work, he's talking about God's grace, this gracious work which is being administered by us for the glory of the Lord himself, taking precaution that no one should discredit us in our administration of this generous gift. The clear implication there is that the gift, which was a gracious work of God, if it were not faithfully overseen through God-appointed under-shepherds of Christ, it could easily have been handled in a manner that did not glorify Christ. And Paul and his co-workers who gathered the gifts and took them to Jerusalem were accountable to God to, quote, take precaution to handle the gift in a manner that was above reproach, that was honoring in God's sight. When Paul finally arrived in Jerusalem with this gift, we can be quite sure that he wasn't the one who determined how the money was going to be distributed to each specific need within the local, local community of saints in Jerusalem. He handed the money over to the elders of the Jerusalem church and they made 
those determinations at the direction of the Holy Spirit. That's why I say it's a corporate process at both ends of the gift. Again, please hear me. It is certainly not a bad thing for one Christian to give money or material help directly to another Christian. It's good and it's necessary. James chapter 2, verses 15 and 16 says, If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? There is a necessary place for direct individual gifts given by one Christian to another, especially, especially, when you or I have good personal knowledge of the need and of the recipient. But I believe on biblical grounds that the best use of our financial gifts to address needs within the church is that use which is administered through the church. And guys, I'm the last person in the world to make a big deal out of I don't like soliciting money in the church. I hate it. And and I don't even think it's biblical. What I'm trying to do is lay out what I believe God is teaching to us all about how giving works. Are you with me? Why would such centralized administration of financial gifts be important? To avoid unwise giving. How would the leaders in the church know whether it was wise or unwise to give some of these pooled funds to a particular person or family or ministry? Well, God has given us some really good guidelines on this stuff. I'm going to give you just two examples, and there are quite a few. The first has to do with Christians who will not work. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, Paul gives very straightforward instruction to the saints about how to deal with deadbeat Christians. Brothers, he calls them, who are, quote, leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all. His instruction is very clear. If anyone will not work, neither let him eat. If you refuse to be available to God as an instrument of His provision for you and your family, it would not be godly for other Christians to help you remain unavailable. And then Paul says to the faithful saints in Thessalonica, but as for you, brethren, do not grow weary of doing good. In other words, don't give money to lazy Christians and don't let lazy Christians keep you from being generous in giving to meet real needs in the body of Christ. The second example regarding the wisdom that God gives us that that bears on how we distribute gifts from the saints to the saints is 1 Timothy 5 where Paul instructs the church to put a widow on the list for financial assistance only if some very clear conditions have been met. And they're not real easy conditions. A widow, if a widow has children or grandchildren, those family members of the widow must, quote, practice piety in regard to their own family and make some return to their parents, for this is acceptable in the sight of God. Now, this is a very practical outworking of the fifth commandment to honor your father and your mother. Also, a widow, Paul says, must be over 60 years old to be put on the list. 
and must have been, quote, a one-man woman. In other words, she must have been faithful to her husband when he was alive. And then a widow must demonstrate devotion to God, having her hope fixed on God, continuing in entreaties and prayers day and night, having washed the saints' feet, having assisted those in distress, and having devoted herself to good works. Wow. This is not a low standard for receiving money that is given by other Christians to care for the needs of their fellow saints. And guys, if you wonder why sometimes you report a need to us and when, when our folks who administer benevolence giving, when it takes a little while and when some gifts are not given that are requested, it's because of this kind of thing. There is such a thing as unwise giving. that doesn't. You, guys, you don't give money to an alcoholic to spend on alcohol. What about remote needs? Needs within the church, but not your local church. Like the needs that this multi-city contribution Paul was gathering were intended to meet. Well, a good example for us is giving to support the work of missionaries in faraway places. And to meet needs within churches in faraway places that that God creates through that, that work. There are essentially two ways that people give to support the work of specific missionaries at CBC. One of those ways is by contributing to the CBC Missions Fund and letting the elders administer the distribution of that fund to different missionaries that we support as a church. Another way that many in our body support the work of specific missionaries is by giving directly to them through a missions organization or some other way. Now, I say this with trepidation and and want to make it clear to you, I'm not speaking under any inspiration in me. All I'm saying is look at these passages and then consider which of those two might be best. Not good and bad, but good and best. Okay? I have to say, what I, from what I see in these passages, I think the first way is preferable. Because it takes advantage of the combined wisdom of plural leadership. Plural leadership means that more than one person is involved in every important decision that affects the body. And beloved, plural leadership is what God intends. The church in Jerusalem had more than one man making decisions about how the money that was pooled together by the saints was distributed to meet specific needs. Peter and James And John were all part of the group of apostolic leaders in that first generation church. And Paul appointed multiple elders in each of the local churches that God started through him throughout the Roman Empire in mostly Gentile cities. This is critical for every aspect of church leadership. And that certainly includes the handling of money given for the support of the church's people in the church's work in the world. At CBC, we are absolutely committed to this God-ordained pattern for leadership. And if you've been through the newcomers class, you've heard about this. I have one vote out of seven on our elder board, and I'm very thankful to God that that's just about to become one out of eight with the addition of my brother David. The church worldwide has only one chief shepherd. I I, I don't want to 
ruffle too many feathers here, but you ever thought about the, 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 how synonymous the two phrases are, chief shepherd and senior pastor? Anyway. Every other man whom God calls into a leadership role in his church is an under-shepherd of Jesus. And the most important thing for you to know about under-shepherds is that we're nothing special. I used to think of uh, elders as sheepdogs. That's, that's way too flattering. Dogs are smarter than sheep. We're just sheep. God's assignment to elders is to lead together so that the decisions we make affecting this church are made with the spiritual gifts of each of, each of the elders in the mix and with every idea challenged and checked by the group. God's design for, the, for leadership in his church keeps the under-shepherds utterly dependent on the chief shepherd. That's why we do what we do. All right, I, I know I've got to wrap it up here. There's a lot more here to say than I have time to say, and I'm sure that uh, I'm not going to be popular with some of what I've said, but I, I, please understand, guys, what I, I pray for here is very simple. It is... A, that we not turn this into some legalistic uh, bunch of, you know, biting and devouring each other. Secondly, it is that we not just turn our face away from what God is clearly saying to us. No matter how hard it is. No matter what it requires of us. Above all, what I pray that we clearly see this morning is that God's goal for our giving within the household of God is love-driven equality of provision so that no one has too much and no one has too little. It's both of those things. We can either kill this principle with the death of a thousand qualifications, or we can actually strive to live it out in the church out of love. For some of us, perhaps for most of us, that may mean a substantial change in our pattern of giving that has a direct impact on our standard of living. But above all else, the engine of our giving, that which controls and compels our giving, must be right. Guilt won't cut it. Burdensome duty won't cut it. Pleasing people won't cut it. Gifts that come out of those motivations are just filthy rags in the sight of God. So don't even bother. God loves a cheerful giver. In order for our giving to be pleasing in the sight of God, it must be a response to that which God has, has so generously and lavishly given to us in Jesus Christ. This all goes back to what I believe is the central verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, and that is verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet he became poor, that through his poverty you might become rich. That's not a lower standard for giving than a rule-based standard. It's a higher standard. It's the highest of all standards. And it's the only standard that makes giving a delight rather than a burden. The unfathomable riches of Christ that God has lavished upon us in Christ, 
His extravagant gift given to us is what frees us to give freely. God is inviting you and me to participate in His gracious provision for His children through His children. We have every reason to say, look what we get to do as we generously and freely give. Out of the overflowing wellspring of life and blessing that God has showered upon us in Jesus Christ. Dear Father, open the eyes of our hearts to truly see and agree with and act upon what you are telling us. We ask this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and for his sake. Amen.